Hello and welcome to the third neuroscience podcast from Swansea University. Hello, Dr. Phil. Hello. <laughs> so this week we've been hurried by the students. They've been enjoying the podcast, so thank you for your feedback. Um, and they've asked us to hurriedly talk about neurotransmitters before their exam next week. Which is what we'll do. Which is what we'll do. Um, are we well prepared for that? As pre- mm, prepared enough okay. to convey to the students necessary information about neurotransmitters. Yes. Good. We'll be fine. Um, okay, so like I say, thanks for the feedback. If you've got any comments or if you want to, uh, if you have ideas for stuff you'd like us to talk about neuroscience-wise in the future, you can send us an email to s.v.webster at swansea.ac.uk or give us feedback through iTunes or put some comments on my blog or whatever you like. But uh, yeah, give us some feedback. It's useful. Okay, Phil, is there a structure to this podcast or are we just going to go through a list of neurotransmitters? Are you going to tell me what they do and what they are? Uh, I thought I would be guided by the lecture that I gave on neurotransmitters and uh, really just summarize that, talk about some of the important details that we talked about in the lecture and um, yeah, go through them all one by one, I guess. Look at common themes, common functions, etc. Okay, and I'm sure your lecture was beautifully structured. I I wouldn't be uh, able to comment on the structure of my own lecture, Samuel. Let me guess. Does it start with what is a neurotransmitter? Uh, actually, <laughs> yes, it does. Oh, it does. Well, I, I feel that's a very logical place to start. And well, that's I, why I guessed it would be. I feel complimented by the fact that you've recognised that. Um, do you want me to tell you what a neurotransmitter is? Yeah, I think I've got an idea. I think it's probably some sort of signalling molecule that floats around inside the brain and magically transmits stuff to other neuros. Uh, that is, I don't think that would get you a pass. In the <laughs> That's why I'm here. You've uh, you've picked up on some important details. They are the chemicals which neurons use to talk to each other. Right. Um, they are released in a very focused and specific way. Ah. We talked about action potentials. Yes. Uh, a few weeks ago. And one neuron talking to another neuron. Exactly. On. So a neuron fires an action potential, and the last thing that happens as a result of that action potential firing is the release of neurotransmitter. And uh, depending upon the neurotransmitter that is released, uh, depends upon the actions on the postsynaptic neuron. Right. We probably should start by defining, as you so eloquently suggested, what is a neurotransmitter. I'm very conscious that our students, keen and enthusiastic as they are, will will rush to neuroscience textbooks and pick them up and open the chapter labeled neurotransmitters, and they will find various very definitive-sounding guidelines used to determine whether or not a substance is or is not a neurotransmitter. I think it's very important that our students ignore those guidelines. There isn't one clear definition, then, of what a neurotransmitter is? Uh, Not... Not really that's sort of clinically useful anyway. Um, if you think about them just as the chemicals that neurons use to talk to each other, there yeah. are uh, other basic principles that usually hold. Um, they are made by neurons. They're usually released from the presynaptic terminal. Right. And um, released in response to the firing of an action potential. Although uh, retrograde neurotransmitters, which... Uh, we talked about briefly. Did we talk about that in the action potentials? Don't remember it. You didn't. Okay. Well, retrograde neurotransmitters are neurotransmitters which go backwards, and so they are released by the postsynaptic neuron, 
Oh. And they're not really re- released in response to action potential firing. It's more overstimulation of the postsynaptic neuron. Right. It's a feedback mechanism whereby the postsynaptic neuron says, please be quiet to the presynaptic neuron. Right. Um, there are usually specific receptors on the postsynaptic site. There are also receptors on the presynaptic site. And there is usually a specific inactivation mechanism present for a neurotransmitter like a a digestive enzyme and or a transporter that sucks up excess neurotransmitter back into the presynaptic cell. Uh So, yeah, that's what a neurotransmitter is. Okay. That sounds all right. It sounds all right? Yeah, I can't imagine the textbooks vary that much from that, do they? The textbooks, like I said, there are lots of them. They put little bits. They put definitions in that are fairly strict. And uh, because of the rapidly receding boundaries of scientific knowledge in the neuroscience field, those guidelines often become outdated very quickly. So I, the bottom line is I'm not going to ask my students questions to def- about defining neurotransmitters. Okay. But if I was to say then the neurotransmitter is uh, something that's produced by the presynaptic neuron, which will then bind with the receptor on the postsynaptic neuron and probably trigger it to do something. Is that what, am I right there? Uh, a new, neurorecept, neuroreceptors, neurotransmitters do generally do that, yes, but there are exceptions to both of those oh, criteria, oh, which okay. is really the point. Oh, crikey. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> you said this was going to be easy. Well, it will be. This is the only difficult bit. I do like to generally start with the complicated stuff and then move on to the laundry list of important facts. Okay. Um, so we can pick you up, pick up on that point, though. Most people, quite correctly, think of neurotransmitters as being released from a presynaptic terminal and acting upon receptors on the postsynaptic terminal. Yeah, and that's that, simple. That's the way it should be. That is, that is a, a useful but unfortunately limited understanding of all the elements involved in the life of a neurotransmitter. Ah, damn it. I, you know, it's not your fault. There are no <laughs> neurotransmitters in cartilage. No. Um, I like the simple. Uh, there are, in addition to postsynaptic receptors, presynaptic receptors. Right. And so what that means is neurotransmitter is released from a presynaptic terminal and then acts upon presynaptic receptors located on that same uh, presynaptic terminal from which it was released. Yeah. Usually or very often what those presynaptic receptors do is limit the release of further transmitter. Okay, so they're a negative feedback system wherein you get too much neurotransmitter released and so it activates the presynaptic receptors and it shuts down the release of further transmitter. You're kind of mopping up or you're just trying to keep a steady level? Just just to, to prevent the postsynaptic neuron from becoming overstimulated. Right, right. Okay. Um, so we have postsynaptic receptors, we have presynaptic receptors and to touch upon that point you just made, there, there are a couple of mechanisms by which excess neurotransmitter is cleared out of the synapse. Right. Okay? There are enzymes released into the synapse which chew up the excess neurotransmitter. And there are also neurotransmitter transporters yeah. located uh, usually on the presynaptic terminal, which are just like little vacuum cleaners, which get turned on when the uh, neurotransmitter is released vacuum cleaner comes on and sucks up any excess neurotransmitter that hasn't bound to post or presynaptic receptors. That makes sense because I can imagine you'd want to be able to switch on and switch off the effect of the neurotransmitter. Yes, indeed. You need very tight control over the uh, 
abundance of neurotransmitter in the synapse so that you don't get, again, overstimulation of the postsynaptic terminal or neurotransmitter just diffusing out and acting upon other synapses. Uh, the other thing, the fifth element in the life of a neurotransmitter that we should mention are those enzymes that synthesize the neurotransmitter. And those, together with the pre and postsynaptic receptors and neurotransmitter transporters and degrading enzymes, are all five of them sites of action for drugs which affect the nervous system. Ah. Okay, so because our neurotransmitters are uh, smallish, reasonably complicated molecules, they can, can be effectively mimicked to block or or activate receptors or to, to block up transporters or degrading enzymes, etc. So I imagine this is all pretty well understood then, this this stuff, so that we can... Uh, yes. It's certainly, uh, it's certainly very important, you know, the, the concepts in terms of uh, drugs to treat neurological and psychiatric disorders, you know, understanding the different ways in which neurotransmitter acts and in which it's processed is very important for understanding how drugs work. So really important then for medical students to understand how neurotransmitters work. I would say so, Some yes. of the key ones and how the pharmacology affects it. Mm, okay, Indeed. okay, good stuff. So what we'll do, I think, is then is maybe just go through some of the most important neurotransmitters and where appropriate, talk about their receptors, talk about their breakdown and synthesis and talk about where where appropriate drugs that act upon those sites. Okay, so you've got a list of neurotransmitters that these guys really should know about. I do indeed. Posted on Blackboard, uh, the neurotransmitter summary table contains uh, a list of the most important neurotransmitters, where they're synthesized, drugs that act upon them or their receptors, etc. And I don't think I put in what they do, but... Uh, Certainly a list of the most important neurotransmitters and some of their key key aspects of their biology. Okay, where are we going to begin? Well, we do have a couple of additional basic concepts to get through before we go into our... Uh, I'm sorry. More? Yeah. <laughs> it's the complicated stuff. You get the complicated stuff done first. You said it was going to be easy. And then once you've done the complicated stuff, you can go through the easy laundry list of facts. Okay, okay. Okay, so... Uh, we need to spend a moment considering uh, receptors. We talked, I don't know if we did talk about this in our Action Potentials podcast, but there are two basic types of receptor upon which our neurotransmitter may, may act. And I don't mean two types in terms of their location, i.e. pre- and postsynaptic. I mean in terms of their structure and function. And those two types are ionotropic receptors and metabotropic receptors. Ionotropic and... Metabotropic. Metabotropic. That's a very okay. blank look you gave me there, Sam. Yeah, <laughs> completely new words for me. They're very simple. That's not a blank look, that's my storing new information look. I see, I see. Noted. Can you give me a blank look then for reference? No. Okay. You, know, you never have a blank look. <laughs> I'd have to be... Yeah, okay. I'd have to be blank to give a blank look. At, um, yeah. Okay. It's a philosophical concept we will, we will deal with Let's later. delve into the... No, let's not. Okay, so ionotropic receptors, very simple means that they conduct ions, okay? They are holes through which ions travel, things like right. sodium, potassium, chloride. Okay. Okay. Usually the effects of ionotropic receptors are very fast, and they are the receptors that are generally involved in the transmission or inhibition of transmission of an action potential. 
Ah, oh, yes, yeah. right, good. So Back to that, t- tell yeah, yeah. Look at that, linking uh-huh. it up. <laughs> so when we talked about ligand-gated sodium channels opening as a result of neurotransmitter binding and initiating the depolarization that then results in an action potential eventually, uh, those are ionotropic receptors. Ah, right, yes. Back to podcast one. Good. There you go. Okay. Uh, metabotropic receptors are perhaps simplest, sm- the most simply defined by the virtue of them not being ionotropic. Okay? Ah, okay. They are, there are no pores in a metabotropic receptor, so ions do not travel through them. Right. They are generally coupled to intracellular signaling molecules or systems that then mediate gene transcription or whatever it is that intracellular signaling does and does pretty much everything. They do often act upon uh, ionotropic receptors. So you'll stimulate a metabotropic receptor, activate an intracellular signaling cascade that then regulates the function of an ionotropic receptor. Nice. Meaning that they can, in their own way, be inhibitory or excitatory or, or affect the probability of an action potential being fired, but they themselves do not conduct ions. Okay, okay, yeah, I got that. There are more types of metabotropic receptor than there are ionotropic. All right, the final thing, the final basic principle, which is useful from an anatomy point of view. Yeah. He's piqued his interest. (laughs) Um, It is useful to think about neurons or collections of neurons releasing only one neurotransmitter. Okay, Okay. So we often talk, when we're talking about uh, how bits of the brain talk to each other, we talk about things like serotonergic projections. Yes. Okay, and those will be neurons that release serotonin. Right. And you'll see on all the anatomy diagrams where we talk about, say, the the dorsal raphe, the raphe nuclei where serotonin is made, they will send serotonergic projections to the frontal cortex, hippocampus, etc. Although that is anatomically useful, it's not quite correct. They've just made it simple for a simple anatomist, have they? I I don't know that I would put it quite like that. (laughs) (laughs) No need to feel inferior as an anatomist, Sam very complicated <laughs> so i can live with that um because you've got so much information to deal with yes we're not just looking at the brain we also sometimes look at the foot <laughs> and other bits of the body foot, although if there are any foot people listening i mean no insult to the foot they're very important very you realize how important your foot is when it's in plaster for six right. weeks yes yes of course <laughs> far be it for me to to belittle the foot anyway back to the brain uh so most neurons make more than one neurotransmitter. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. So I I'd struggle to imagine that. Yes. One. It, it doesn't make yeah, one thing. No, conceptually, it it doesn't make sense that they would only make one. Yeah. Although we generally think of them as doing so. Okay, that's just to kind of better organise it to help people understand it. Yeah? Uh, yes, and often there is there is a sort of dominance in that a serotonergic projection also makes, say, a neuropeptide but you wouldn't refer to that projection as being uh, a projection that makes only that peptide. It's a serotonergic projection that makes a peptide rather than a peptidergic projection that makes serotonin, if you see what I mean. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, which brings me to the point that most or most commonly the co-release neurotransmitter is a peptide, and peptide neurotransmitters generally have effects that are slower than the small molecule neurotransmitters. Right. And they are often more long-lasting. Okay. Uh, because it takes a while to make a peptide and package it up and chuck yeah. it out and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, okay. 
Um, so the principle that neurons only make one neurotransmitter is called Dale's principle, and it's mostly nonsense, but functionally useful. Dale's principle, yeah. right. Dale Schmale. <laughs> I didn't say that, Dale, if you're listening, which you're probably not. Uh, all right, so you want to go through the neurotransmitters? Oh, we're there now, are we? Well, we can be. I yeah. mean, we can talk about fishing for a while if you want. No, Whew, I'm just glad I got through the complicated stuff. Yeah, that, that is as complicated as it gets. Okay, I think I kept a grip on most of that. So how many neurotransmitters are we going to talk about? Uh, we will talk about, uh, in detail, probably only seven or eight. Okay. Um, there, there are multiple different ways of classifying neurotransmitter um, into functional, chemical, anatomical groups. Right. My point being, we don't have to go through them in any particular order. Um, but I have grouped them into neurotransmitters whose action is more general and are found widely throughout the nervous system, and then those whose whose uh, sites of synthesis are more restricted. Okay. Sound good? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Okay. We'll start with glutamate. Okay. Glutamate is, these days, the... the uh, the textbook neurotransmitter. When we talked about action potentials being initiated by the binding of an excitatory neurotransmitter to its receptor, we're talking about glutamate. Right. Um, most excitatory neurotransmission, certainly in the central nervous system, involves the release and action of glutamate. Um, because it is so widespread, it's not generally advisable to try and muck about with glutamate pharmacology in order to res to produce a uh, clinical endpoint. Oh, okay. Because blocking glutamate generally just produces sedation. Yeah, it's so going to affect too much. Exactly. Things like ketamine <clears throat> and, to a certain extent, alcohol block glutamate receptors. Oh, really? To a certain extent, yeah. Yeah. Potentiating the effects of glutamate, making glutamate act uh, more efficiently or, or adding in more glutamate generally just produces hyperexcitability um, and thus things like seizures or right. uh, even excitotoxic effects. So glutamate in very high concentrations is excitotoxic. So too much glutamate kills neurons. Right. And it's an important mechanism by which neurons die during stroke. Oh, really? Is that um, they panic and they release loads of glutamate, which... Uh, causes hyperexcitability of the target neurons, which then release loads of glutamate and so on. Oh, oh, there you go. So glutamate blockers may be potentially one day useful in the treatment of stroke. Right. Um, the only other thing of note about glutamate is that monosodium glutamate is very commonly added to food. Ah, it yes. Makes it tastes better because it gets your tongue all excited. Ah. There you go. Nice. like that. So glutamate everywhere, important, good. Important scientifically, functionally, yeah. clinically, not so important. Okay. Next. GABA. GABA. Gamma aminobutyric acid. Okay. Gamma, uh, gamma. GABA is the main inhibitory neurotransmitter in the central nervous system. Okay, and we talked about that, I think, in a bit of detail when we talked about action potentials. Uh, there are two types of GABA receptor. GABA-A, which is ionotropic, conducts chloride, and we talked about in week 110. You're going to be blankly again, no? No, no. No? Fact storage? No, no. I'm thinking. That's not my blank look. That's my thinking look. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I'll <laughs> I, um, I, 
I misread your visual cues. What can I say? <laughs> Concentrate all the time. Um, GABA B receptors are metabotropic and often presynaptic. And we talked about how presynaptic receptors often limit the release of further yep, transmitter. Yep. The GABA B receptor is one of the definitive examples of that. GABA B receptors um, limit further GABA release. So, because GABA is the main inhibitory neurotransmitter, um, it is useful to think pharmacologically of activating GABA receptors as producing uh, inhibition, sedation, drowsiness, etc. Mm-hmm. Okay, the, those two things don't logically flow scientifically, but clinically they work very well together, or practically. So, there are many, many drugs which make GABA receptors work better, okay, which potentiate the effects of GABA at GABA receptors. Things like benzodiazepines, lorazepam, yeah. diazepam, Valium. Oh, yeah. All those. Oh. They make GABA work a bit better. Okay. Uh, alcohol, very good at making GABA receptors, uh, making GABA work better at GABA receptors. Oh. Alcohol in combination with a benzodiazepine, such as funitrazepam, produces a very profound sedation that is exploited uh, criminally by persons engaging in date rape. Ah. Always a cheery topic for a podcast, eh? <laughs> yes. But unfortunately, uh, fairly important. Uh, so, yeah, you've got a much... You can monkey about with GABA receptors to produce uh, anxiolysis, sedation... Uh, all sorts of inhibitory effects. Okay, okay. Uh, blocking GABA receptors, thus blocking the endogenous inhibition within the central nervous system, generally produces, again, hyperexcitability, seizures, not a very popular therapeutic strategy. Right. You won't find many drugs out there that block GABA receptors. Sure, that makes sense. Um, we've talked about GABA and glutamate. Glutamate being the major excitatory neurotransmitter and GABA being the major inhibitory neurotransmitter. You will often see in textbooks and other resources uh, neurotransmitters described as excitatory and inhibitory. Those two terms are really only useful for GABA and glutamate. Okay. Oh, really? You can't, yeah. Describing things like dopamine and serotonin as excitatory and inhibitory isn't, isn't very useful. So... We talk about excitatory and inhibitory. We only really talk about glutamate and GABA, and it's not a particularly useful distinction. Okay. The rest of them. Stored. Excellent. Got it. Um, we'll mention briefly glycine. It's another inhibitory neurotransmitter. It does many of the things that... Is it? Yeah. Oh, oh. yeah. There's many of the things that GABA does, only it does them in the spinal cord ah. and the brainstem. Um, not an awful lot of glycine in the central nervous system only ionotropic receptors for glycine it's very primitive neurotransmitter yeah and um glycine receptors are blocked by strychnine ah that would be bad you know what strychnine is yeah i've heard of strychnine My, the students haven't heard of strychnine really yeah i got blank looks oh i think one of them even asked me what strychnine was maybe it's something to do with being old sam it's, it's an old poisoner's poison, yeah, is it? Not yeah. a new poisoner's poison. Exactly. These <laughs> modern poisoners yeah, don't appreciate the old school value of strychnine. Anyway, all right. So 
GABA glutamate and glycine, they're fairly straightforward. Their chemistry is fairly straightforward, pharmacologically not, um, well, fairly straightforward. We're now going to talk about, uh, spend a bit of time talking about serotonin. Ooh, serotonin. Heard of that one. You have. Most yeah. people have. <laughs> um, thanks to the, the magic of modern marketing. It's a pop science um, neurotransmitter, isn't it? It is, yes. Serotonin and dopamine are... You can you can attribute anything to serotonin, um, but not in an exam answer, probably. Uh, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's probably not many psychiatric disorders that you don't use SSRIs for these days. I guess maybe the, right. the, the more dopamine-based disorders. Okay, but I'm speculating wildly. Right, this is probably not my place. Okay. All right, serotonin. Yes. It's made in the raphe nuclei, okay, uh, which are sort of down there in the in the brainstem and those lower, less evolved parts of the brain. And the raphe nuclei project everywhere throughout the brain: frontal cortex, hippocampus, down to the spinal cord, etc. Yeah. And as we have touched upon, you can find roles for serotonin in many, many. Um, normal and pathological states. Depression, control of appetite, nausea, whether or not you sleep correctly, sexual arousal, analgesia, anxiety, etc. Um, because of its many roles, it is targeted by many clinically important drugs. Right. Obviously, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, block the serotonin transporter, increase the abundance of, of serotonin, and allegedly treat depression. Uh, some things like ondansetron, which I think is a, a nausea drug, uh, also target the serotonin system. Part of the complexity within the serotonin system, how it is comes to be that serotonin is involved in so many different behaviors, is uh, in part because it has many, many different receptors. So different receptors, different functions. Yes. Right. There are at least 13 different serotonin receptors. Oh, okay. You will see them described in literature as 5-HT receptors, 5-hydroxytryptamine, which is a more chemical name for serotonin. Ah, ah, ah right. Um, they're all, bar one, metabotropic receptors. Okay. And so they're coupled to intercellular signaling pathways. We don't need to go through all the different types of serotonin receptor. We can mention briefly the 5-HT2A receptor, which is activated by hallucinogenic drugs, things ah, like LSD. Right. And uh, therefore, reasonably understandably, is also blocked by atypical antipsychotic drugs. Okay, yeah. And the 5-HT3 receptor is the only ionotropic receptor and is the one that is blocked by ondansetron. I right. mentioned ondansetron and fluoxetine because they are... Uh, in the GEM formulary. Ah. Did we mention that? Have we mentioned that already? Well, have we mentioned the formulary? Have we mentioned yeah. the... I don't know. I don't think so. I feel we should mention it. Okay, go on then. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd give you a chance to say something. Um, formulary. Helen Day has prepared for you a list of the 100 most commonly prescribed drugs. I think that's how it's... I think so, yeah. Um, as, as polled from all your... Um, friendly local clinicians and 
if you know how these drugs work, you will be in good shape to answer um, the majority of pharmacology questions. Yeah, that's the aim. Uh, so yeah, on Densitron and Floxtine in the formulary. That's two, 98 to go. Uh, we've probably mentioned a couple. We've mentioned lorazepam. That's in the formulary. Yeah, okay. And we mentioned something else, didn't we? We will. Don't worry, we'll mention more. I should make a point, actually, of mentioning, when I mention a drug, of stating that it's in the formulary. Um, so serotonin, very, very busy little neurotransmitter. Does a lot of things. Uh, I did mention in the lecture, and I, it's worth mentioning briefly now, that uh, we are, in terms of your pop science, often told that simply increasing the abundance of serotonin alleviates major depression, and therefore uh, it is hypothesized that just not having enough serotonin is a mechanism by which people become depressed. Uh, a bit more complicated than that. but I had a feeling you were going to say that. Sorry. I will, I will <laughs> not attempt to explain how it does work other than to say that um, the simplicity of the theory makes it very attractive in a marketing way. Sure. And, uh, thus financially very attractive. But I gave the students links in the lectures to a couple of references which which throw more light onto the role of serotonin in depression and the effectiveness of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Oh, okay. Which are of interest both from a scientific point of view and from the point of view of being able to critically appraise scientific research. Good. Good. Yeah. Good. Very yeah. good. Right. Make them think. Okay. Is that serotonin done? I, I, unless you've got anything you want to say about serotonin? No. I'm getting sure? a little bit saturated now. You are? You've got serotonin saturation syndrome? <laughs> um, learning saturation. Uh, all right, well... Who's next? It's going to get even simpler from this point forward. Is it? Good? Uh, acetylcholine, we won't talk about it because I've just spent all morning talking to the students about it as part of week 129. Um, and I assume we will attempt at some point to generate a podcast discussing the autonomic nervous system. So acetylcholine is going to get pretty much its own podcast? Uh, it's going to get a large chunk of Whoa. a podcast about the autonomic nervous system. Okay. Very important acetylcholine. Very important for drugs, uh, drug treatments, and also for just general functioning of, of your entire body. Really. So important even I've heard of it. Yeah. Right. Next. Dopamine. Dopamine, heard of that one too. You've heard, I think you know, I think I recall you saying dopamine was your favourite. Yeah, I think it's my favourite, I don't know. Again, pop science. Yeah, okay, it's about uh, reward, helping you... Learn about learn. stuff. Yes, yeah. it's that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, dopamine... Rather than directly feeling good. As yeah, a, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, you don't want me to say it's complicated, do you? You can. It's I'll complicated. Just, I'll just take my headphones off. <laughs> no, go on. Um, dopamine, dopamine is complicated, and dopamine, like acetylcholine, will uh, next year probably get a podcast all of its own. Okay, you do hear about dopamine an awful lot, so I assume it's got an awful lot of functions, and it, you do, and yeah. it does. Yeah, um, and no doubt it's at the cutting edge of research as well. Still, is it? Millions spent, yeah. billions spent on dopamine. Um, I don't suppose I should comment on the validity of spending billions on researching dopamine, should I? No. It clearly is very important 
in Parkinson's disease. Right. Uh, dopamine is only made really in two regions of the brain, the ventral tegmental area, which we talked about when we talked about you and your flapjack. Yeah. And uh, the substantia nigra, yep. which uh, we will talk about in Parkinson's week. Yeah, we'll yeah. mention it here as saying it's a part of the brain that makes dopamine and is very important for the initiation and coordination of movement. And when it dies, the result is Parkinson's disease. Okay. So pretty much the majority of treatments, current treatments for Parkinson's disease increase the abundance of dopamine, things like rapinirol, L-dopa, et cetera. Right. Um, most so-called traditional antipsychotic medications, things like haloperidol, block dopamine receptors. Yeah. And so there is a very, very oversimplified but nevertheless useful way of thinking of too much dopamine resulting in psychosis. Right. Um, only really two important, well, there are, there are, I think there are about five dopamine receptors. D1 and D2 are uh, perhaps the most, most important. Can I say that? Will dopamine people shoot me? Most relevant? Most the ones that medical students should know about? Yeah, I don't even think we need to say that much. Okay. There are a few dopamine receptors. They're all metabotropic. Um, yeah, that'll do. Uh, we'll talk about it in Parkinson's week. We'll talk about it in um, schizophrenia week. We'll talk about it in bipolar week, in neurotic disorder week. It will it will feature heavily. Okay, so we'll, uh, we'll expand on dopamine in the future. Okay. Key thing to note, rapinirol, haloperidol, ketiapine, all in the formulary, all act on the dopamine system. Okay, okay. Noradrenaline. Uh, again, we talked a lot about noradrenaline this morning in our autonomic nervous system lecture. We'll probably cover that in more detail when we record a podcast about it. Yep. Uh, in a nutshell? In a nutshell. It's made by the locus ceruleus. Okay. Um, which projects throughout the cortex. It's important for attention and arousal in the alert state, i.e. being alert requires noradrenaline. Right. Um, cocaine blocks the noradrenaline transporter, much like serotonin does the serotonin transporter, so more adrenaline makes you more alert. Um, amphetamine turns the noradrenaline transporter inside out, so that rather than sucking noradrenaline out of the synapse, it blows noradrenaline into the synapse. Huh. Um, yeah, that's pretty much all we need to say about it. Uh, Ritalin, ADHD treatment. Oh, really? Also acts on uh, the noradrenergic system. Ah, okay, that makes sense. Who's next? Who's next? We should mention histamine. Oh, yeah. Not a lot. Not a lot. Not a lot we can really say about histamine. It's terribly interesting. But a lot of drugs in the GEM formulary are uh, antihistamines. Yeah. They probably act almost exclusively on histamine that's produced by mast cells. Yeah. That sort of thing that Claire Vogan's more interested in. Yes. Um, that doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. So most of the important effects of antihistamines, at least in terms of what our medical students need to know, in terms of the formulary, they are probably peripheral effects. I mean, peripheral has nothing to do with uh, histamine in the nervous system. 
Right, okay. So you'll see histamine listed as a neurotransmitter. You'll think, oh my God, there's all these antihistamines in the formulary. I should know all about it. Yeah. You don't really need to worry about it. Okay, okay. <clears throat> all right. Uh, the final thing, the final neurotransmitter we need to talk about, which probably is your favorite, is uh, or are the endogenous opioids. Oh, yes. The things that make you feel good. When I'm running. Yes. Your runner's high which you, you crave so badly, mm. um, that's uh, endorphins, right? which are endogenous opioids. They, uh, endorphin means morphine-like, okay, very literally. And so endorphins and other endogenous opioids are the natural chemicals, the natural neuropeptides in the brain that do, um, in a normal fashion, what morphine does in a... a uh, very exaggerated pharmacological fashion. So they produce euphoria. They also produce analgesia. Um, they are the only peptides that we've talked about so far. Ah. They are perhaps the most Im well, most important. Can we say that? Certainly in terms of RGEM formulary, they're the most important neuropeptide. Morphine is in the formulary. Uh, codeine and tramadol also act upon the opioid system. Obviously many addictive and abused drugs, things like heroin, uh, act upon the opioid system. Endorphin is, is perhaps the most important in terms of uh, clinical, the clinical picture. Uh, there are two other types of endogenous opioid peptide, enkephalins and dynorphins. Right. We won't do anything more than mention them, I think. Okay. Um, the synthesizer is propeptide, so you make one massive peptide, you chop it up, and you get your endorphins and your enkephalins. They're made by the hypothalamus, releases them in the periaqueductal gray in the brainstem, and we'll talk all about them in Pain Week 230. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're, we're selling ourselves here. We're setting ourselves up for a, a lifetime of podcast making. We've got a lot of podcasters, haven't we? Yeah. My um, head's already spinning. It is. Oh, God, yeah. Just like <coughs> a... Uh, Beach ball of death on the Macintosh screen. Shh. I think that's about it, mate. I think I think we've covered them. Yeah, no, that's good stuff. Um, I think that'll need listening to a few times to get all that. And it looks like we're going to cover a few of those in more detail in the future, which is going to be helpful, obviously. I, I think the general point is we've introduced them all and you've got the basic idea and um, where possible relate what I'm telling you about neurochemistry to the formulary. Okay, so if you've heard it all before, this is a review of neurotransmitters. Otherwise, this is a nice introduction. It's a good introduction for me. There you go. Oh, God, I'm going to go scratch my head and edit this thing. Smashing. Thank you very much, Phil. See you next time. Do you know what we're going to do next time? Uh, probably, I, well, the autonomic nervous system will have to come soon, but we are neglecting our second years, Sam. Uh, what do they need? They probably need uh, a review of higher cortical function. Okay. Really interesting stuff. Two lectures worth there, so maybe a bonus hour podcast. Okay. Well, that might be good to bash out next time, get it yeah. done while they're revising for their intermediate yes, MBA exams. Indeed. Okay. Yeah. Top banana. Thank you very much, Phil. I'll oh. see you next time. Cheerio, sir. <laughs>